Earlier this month, Dean Ballinger, a fellow conspiracy theory theorist from Aotearoa, New Zealand, died. We interviewed Dean back in the early stages of the podcast, and, to our shame, never got him back. Dean and I remained in contact and deeply interested in each other's work, but unfortunately, now that Dean is dead, there is no opportunity for us to interview Dean once again. So, in lieu of being able to present a new interview with Dean Ballinger, something that we should have done a long time ago, we have decided to reissue this interview, which was episode 62. So back in the glorious days of, before the Donald Trump presidency, when things seemed much better globally. So, without any ado, here is Dean Ballinger, and our discussion of Alistair Crowley and the weirdness of the Waikato. Alistair Crowley was born in October of 1875, and he quickly became known as the Great Beast for biting his nanny on the ankle. Oh, you beast, you great, great beast. Born of fundamentalist religious stock, Crowley did what everyone else was thinking at the time, and decided to reject Christianity and talk to wearing fancy robes and esoteric bling. Could my amulets be bigger and even more golden? Yes, yes they could. Crowley initially joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, but after claiming to have been contacted by the supernatural entity named Iwas, he started the School of Thelema, which operated on the edict, Do what thou wilt, be the whole of the law. Crowley was, among many things, great at putting on a show. But wait, there's more. Whatever you might do will come back to reward you, not once, not twice, but three times. He managed to garner the attention of the creme de la creme of British society, which funded his increasingly lavish lifestyle. He even managed to franchise his operations. My good friend Jack Parsons is handling the American operation. Not sure about his naval friend Al Ron, though. Seems a shady character. Crowley's exploits are somewhat legendary. He joined the pro-German movement during the First World War, but then claimed he was working for the British the entire time. It's all just part of the illusion, you see. In the Second World War, Crowley worked... Also some claim for the Allies. It's me against Himmler. Let the greatest occult powers of Europe duke it out. Crowley died at the age of 72 in 1947, and his funeral was as interesting as his life, at least to the British tabloids. Black mass, black mass, devils in the streets. It's spiritualism run amok. Yet when conspiracy theory theorists talk about conspiracy theories, Crowley is not a name which crops up. Yet Thelema and Crowley were both the subject and object of conspiracy and conspiracy theories. Yet like stories of UFOs and alien cover-ups, serious conspiracy theorists really discuss the occult. My mystery endures. Silence, beast. And stop nibbling at my ankles. Shan't. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Dr. M.R. Extenteth and featuring Josh Addison as... The Interlocutor. This week, Josh and I are joined by Dean Bellinger, who, like me, is an Antipodean conspiracy theory theorist. Dean's PhD dissertation, Conspiratoria, The Internet and the Logic of Conspiracy Theory, looks at conspiracy theories through the lens of media studies. Dean's current interest in conspiracy theories concerns two possibly related subjects many of us who study such theories either avoid or ignore. The occult and UFOs. 
Are they just weird, wacky, and just not worth the effort? Or is there something about these kind of conspiracy theories that typical academic analyses just can't capture? So let's invoke the great beast and find out. Hello, Dean. How's it going? Oh, it, it, it goes well. So uh, how are things down in the more central part of the North Island? Uh, probably considerably colder than up more north, where it's a bit more subtropical, I would presume. Yeah, well, that being said, the weather hasn't been delightful the last few days. Well, it's obviously the chemtrails at work, you know, just to, to get us a bit more chilled out in preparation for the takeover. Uh, see, I think it'd be more the fluoride in the water making us more prone to feeling cold. <laughs> well, we do have that in Hamilton, plenty of fluoride. There's plenty of fluoride activists here as well. Well, and actually, that's true. I mean, uh, for listeners who don't really know much about local body politics within Aotearoa, New Zealand, actually, the fluoride thing was a really big issue down in Hamilton recently, wasn't it? Because you actually, at one stage, voted to get rid of fluoride, and then you voted to put it back into your wa water supply. What was going on there? The health and political authorities here revolted against public opinion and reinstalled it, I think, was the, the crux of the matter. So they just went, these idiotic public conspiracy theorist types or people believing this kind of nonsense and sort of overshod what might have been, well, I don't know about a majority opinion, but a very vocal proportion of the uh, local public and, and just kind of had it reinstated, really. So it's a classic case here of a fluoride conspiracy theory being countered by another fluoride conspiracy theory if you believe that fluoride is a mind control agent. I mean, they, they took it away and then they put it back. Uh, it's actually ever so slightly amusing, truth be told. Yeah. I also find Hamilton interesting as a, a little bit of a hotbed of global warming denial in New Zealand. So the university here has got a couple of you know, significant players in the denial uh, debates. Um, one guy appears to be off on a tangent. He's like a, a lecturer in ocean sciences. But some of the others like in the politics department are definitely much more the you know right-wing sort of libertarian ideology um, angle on it. So they kind of sponsor people coming through, most notably uh, Moncton a couple of years ago. Oh, when he was doing his grand tour of, yeah, of yeah. the country. Yeah, his, his, yeah, which was I, I did go to that, which was an interesting experience, um, rather tawdry affair. But anyway, this is probably a little bit off topic for you. Sorry, Matthew. No, no, no. It's quite right. I was about to say because you went to see Lord Monckton. I saw David Icke when he was out here, and that gets us quite nicely into the topic of UFO-style conspiracy theories. Because when it comes to alien abductions or alien encounters, David Icke really is the urtex of the modern conspiracy theory movement. Yeah. And uh, his talk, which I went to, which was at the Manukau Event Stadium, was nine hours long. I know, it's actually, I did think about going to that, but it was on my wife's birthday, so I thought, yeah, if she... So well, you were... I asked her on a date, I did say, did you want to go and listen to David Icke for nine hours as your birthday present? Um, it's, it, it would be an interesting relationship where yes would be the immediate answer to that. <laughs> yeah, and indeed, yeah, yeah, she, she, you know, politely declined the offer in, in favour of a movie, perhaps, but, you know. Well, you could have watched one of Dave... David Icke's many DVDs. Well, indeed, yes. Yeah, if, if you can, you know, get, get through. I don't know. I actually found him to be a very engaging talker. So completely leaving to one side the actual content of what he was speaking about, he is the kind of person who actually can keep an audience enthralled for nine solid hours. 
Uh, so you have to give him that. Okay, so I was going to say, um, if you thought that was related to his media background, because that's something that struck me as that something that's possibly significant about him. This is me from a media perspective, as compared to some other conspiracy theorists, who their public images of the mad ranter who lacks charisma, so they quickly turn people off, if you like, if they're in that kind of one-on-one mode. But Ike, coming from TV... He was already a public figure before his New Age conversion and sort of, you know, um, entry into the world of conspiracism. So he kind of knew how to play an audience. He knows how to present himself. He's maybe got those skills and experience just, you know, innately wrapped up in him as a person. So he can he can pull that stuff off and that really works for him. Yes, I would say there probably is something to the notion that he's a expert media play, player given his journalistic background with the BBC and other organisations. But also there's a sheer sense of passion and interest that comes out of what he's talking about, which might be fact. It's always quite possible that you can put forward views of some particular kind and make yourself sound sincere. But I think Ike really is a true believer to a certain extent in the kind of things he wants to get across. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I've got that impression as well from like, again watching his online material and reading his books also to the to, you know to the main extent. Um again, sorry it might be a slight digression from the main thrust of your conversation which was on uh, UFO and occult conspiracies. So, oh, quite all right. We we can be as broad-ranging as we desire. Actually, so to get ourselves into this kind of table setting exercise, uh, could you give us what you take it a conspiracy theory is. I think I had some, you know, general definition I used. Well, a conspiracy is, um, you know, a, a group of people doing something in secret for their own interests. There's a political dimension to it. Um, the theory is an explanatory framework set up by other people outside of whatever those power networks are to, you know, try and explain what they perceive to be the machinations and working of power, power defined in a very broad, I don't know, multidisciplinary sense, perhaps across the boards so are not just political power. You could talk about if we're talking about occultism, for example, exercise of magical power or technological power, etc. Sorry, it's probably not the best definition um, off the top of my head. I possibly wasn't expecting that question. Uh, we always always like to get to the very heart of the issue. All right, so you're basically using a definition of conspiracy theory here, which is going, look, it's an explanation of some kind of covert, possibly suspicious event with a political di- dimension. Yeah, that's probably more my thinking about it as coming out of politics and thinking critically about nature of power in society and so forth. I'm not saying that conspiracy theorists think in a necessarily political way, certainly not the, you know, the occult ones we'd think of, but maybe just that that, you know, really ingrained, in depth suspicion of power in a variety of forms. Can I chime in with a question here, Matthew? You certainly can. This is your podcast too, Josh. You can ask whatever well, questions well, you like. I was just going to say, are you going to introduce me to Dean at all? Because I don't want to start firing questions at him before before the man's even oh, okay. well, become so, aware of my existence. So this is one of the, uh, this is one, one of the minute or um, mm. etiquette questions of doing an interview when no one can see each other. Uh, so Dean, this is Josh. Josh, this is Dean. You are now best friends. have known each other for as long as I have. Nice to meet uh, you, Josh. Nice to meet you indeed. So do you have a question, Josh, now that 
you've uh, no, I did have my question. You've re-established it was, it was content. It was, it was can you introduce me? This is going to be the only question you ask in this. In, well, it in might be. I mean, yes, ju- ju- just for Dean's benefit, perhaps I um, did my MA in philosophy alongside Matthew at the University of Auckland, but um, didn't didn't carry on in the realm of academia like he did. So I'm. More in the rain, uh, more in the way of, a, of of an enthusiastic amateur when it comes to the analysis of conspiracy theories. But I, I just do like you're an enthusiastic well. amateur when it comes to surgery. Yep, exactly. <laughs> maybe I won't. I won't follow up on that yeah. reference. Perhaps, or maybe I don't want to know. No, it's true. Actually, the, the, the but the police do. So if you do know about what Josh has been getting up to on Thursday nights, please do get in contact with the local constabulary. They really want to know. All right. So we're going to talk about. UFO and occultic conspiracy theories. Now, when we were having an email correspondence about this prior to this interview, we were kind of talking about the fact that most of the time people who study conspiracy theories, who I term conspiracy theory theorists, often don't talk about these occult or UFO conspiracy theories particularly much. Would you agree with that assertion? I think so. If I'm just giving a a quick run-through of my mental files on particularly academic, scholarly, and you know more serious writings on conspiracy theory, they don't really tend to engage with those topics. I don't think so. They're much more on the on the fringe. Yeah, I'm certainly out, out you know, racking my brains for academics, sort of engaging with it in a particularly applied fashion. Um, there's lots of academic history books, you know, history of conspiracism in America and so forth, as you would know, that will touch on these topics, but. It's kind of giving the big cultural historical overview of them rather than sort of discussing why people find them interesting, why they, you know, perpetuate throughout a culture over time and and those sorts of arguments and analyses. Uh, If there's some key texts that I've I've forgotten about I have not read, please enlighten me um, in that regard. But that's my general impression. Certainly the impression I get uh, just from the, from the other talks Matthew's had uh, with his peers, is that in a, in, a, in a lot of disciplines, conspiracy theories themselves aren't really taken seriously. There seems to be a lot of the time the focus is, well, obviously these things are nonsense, so what we're interested in is why would people believe these ridiculous things in the yeah, first place? Yep. And so I suppose th- like, like it's one thing to have conspiracy theories around in, in the political sphere or something where... Uh, which which people at least acknowledge is, is, you know, real. So I suppose conspiracy theories about things like the occult and UFOs is sort of doubly doubly nonsense in a lot of people's eyes. Yes, I suppose there is a, a certain thing. We can kind of imagine political conspiracies occurring, even though people think that they're quite rare. But when you start bringing in, say, demonic possession, supernatural entities, or alien abductions, you go, no, 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 that's far too beyond the pale. No one really believes those things. We can kind of just shove those theories to one side. They're not worth having any kind of discussion about. Yeah, um... But I think those are actually surprisingly popular. So it doesn't, you know, the, there's the serious scholarly discussion of these topics. But for a lot of, you know, the people on the street interested in them, those sorts of subjects really resonate with them in many ways. Um, you know, okay, look, you're getting into the realms of the anecdotal here, which is probably never particularly good as evidence. But, you know, over the years, Going to social gatherings, you go to a party or something and chat to people and you get into the subject of conspiracism, which often does come up, at least for me. Um, UFOs come up all the time. 
Um, Ike, incredibly popular. I have people talking to me about him all the time. He really, you know, they might not necessarily believe everything he's saying, but they certainly, they know of him. He's got a cultural profile. Um, they probably um, relate to some of his ideas in some way. So, you know, not literally shapeshifting lizard people, but yes, there are real problems with our elites and, you know, there's the kind of masons and some secret groups, you know, having overt influence and covert influence, I meant to say. Um, so, you know, I wonder on a, on a grassroots level if there's a lot of um, engagement um, from the public with conspiracy theories that maybe isn't quite adequately being reflected in some of the scholarship on it. Um, sorry, another interesting line from that is I work in a second-hand bookshop, uh, being impoverished academic because no one can get a job. Um, another story, obviously. But in that, I just regularly meet people coming in looking for books on conspiracy topics, which is really quite fascinating. Um, and again, Ike, if he comes in, he goes straight out. There's people requesting him all the time. Uh, I had a guy come in the other day, he can take me to UFO books, admittedly not that common an occurrence. Um, when I got there, the one that he picked out was Secret of the Ages, UFOs from Inside the Earth, a particularly sort of cranky tome from the 1970s, which I'll admit to having read in my youth, um, about hollow earth theory. This guy was like really excited. You know, I didn't, you know, I said, oh, this is pretty nuts. Yeah, yeah, great. I saw something on the History Channel about this. Sounds excellent. You know, he, he walked away kind of quite thrilled. This was a young, young British guy in his 20s. So, yeah, admittedly, okay, it's just bits and pieces of people, but just, you know, you, you I don't know, you kind of get the sense of there's these cultural undercurrents going on. So, um, my engagements with people plus reading stuff online just makes me think that um, there's a public interest in UFO and occult-themed conspiracism for various reasons that is maybe more significant than some of the scholarly literature might imply. Yes, I must admit, when I think about TV shows in the US, so you look at the History Channel and the channel formerly known as H2, the sister channel to History, and they had shows like America Unearthed, which was looking at uh, the real history of American prehistory, oh, the, okay. ancient, yep. a, the ancient aliens franchise, yep. uh, the search for lost giants. There's a whole lot okay, of literature yep. being produced out there which are making bold conspiratorial claims, often not of a political kind. They're often actually quite apolitical when it comes to alien abductions or alien history. And yet it is true that when conspiracy theory theorists are writing about conspiracy theories, they're mostly writing about the sensible political conspiracy theories of the 20th century. They're not talking about why people might believe that Freemasons are possessed by the devil or why alien abductions are a major facet in Earth history. No, I... I... I agree with you there, and um, I mean my my general thinking is just that you have obviously um, academic cultures, and some topics are just too far beyond the pale uh, to be dealt with in regards to the the cultural politics of those institutions and kind of the mindsets involved from the people who work there. Um, not to say that there's not a lot of people who might be interested in those ideas, but you know. Does it give you a bad reputation if you start dabbling with them? Um, I personally think if you're way out from the centres of anywhere, a la New Zealand, you could probably get away with 
doing scholarly work on all sorts of subjects in, say, university that you maybe couldn't in the States, um, thinking of the experiences of, say, John Mack, the you know famous Harvard psychologist who got way off into accepting the reality of alien abductions, and there was you know the major academic scandal surrounding him where he had to sort of justify himself before a sort of jury of his peers that this was valid research and so forth. Um, but presumably he was from Harvard, you know the sort of American academic class system at work. So if he was at you know. University of Waikato, I know, is probably going to be paying much interest to what the hell are you coming up with down there. In terms of conspiracy theories, uh, we just said around UFOs they're not political, but the, the only ones I'm aware of are ones around that, that where it gets specifically conspiratorial or along the lines of the government knows and they're covering it up. Are there, are there sort of less governmental conspiracies around UFOs or is it all, is it all about cover-ups and, and what, what, what the powers that be are hiding from us? Um, I think from no, I'd I'd agree with you there, Josh. Uh, that they predominantly are around the the political dimension of the cover up, and maybe there's been a change over time. So let's see. the The idea of ufology has been a, a post World War II cultural phenomenon, starting in the states. So 1947, you know, generally cited as the beginnings of ufology, with um, the American civilian pilot Kenneth Arnold citing some strange craft in the sky so he thought and then the term flying saucers was coined out of that and sort of took off in the um, popular imagination but in the 1950s you had some American military officials also at the height of the Cold War so you know they they Donald Kehoe I think was a key figure so he was a some sort of Air Force official who said well there's all these people in the US Air Force and the military and the government who know there's something more about the sources that they come from out of space and that our uh, defense capabilities um you know, are poor in response to them. So if they are a threat, we're actually pathetically ill-equipped to handle that. And, you know, they're, they're keeping this quiet. They know more than they're letting on to not scare the public. So there's maybe an early version of that theme in keeping with Cold War paranoia as well and the beginnings of a sort of political intelligence state that, you know, has kind of got some black government area going on that the public and even most of the members like the, the the president doesn't even know what's happening there but also that shift towards it becoming much more paranoid in its application and its sort of exegesis after Watergate after the real hardcore cynicism maybe set in in the 70s sorry this is obviously incredibly reductive and broad so my apologies for doing such a historical overview um, but yeah just that that you know a lot of commentators that turn to a much more cynical take on American politics and, and its ideals as a nation um, in the 70s, post-Watergate in particular, post-Vietnam. Um, and then you get the sort of bubbling and coming to fruition of, I think, what was called the, the dark side UFO narratives from the 1980s in particular. So that was the whole, the US government is in cahoots with aliens, maybe several races of them, and they're predominantly evil, and they have underground bases in the American Southwest, and they abduct people and take your, you know, sell your genetic materials, sperm and eggs in particular, and they're making hybrid alien human babies out of them, and they're going to raise them and infiltrate the human race and gradually take over, and maybe they've got mind control machinery and... They're doing all sorts of other weird experiments. They may have some agreement with the US government, but they're not telling them exactly what they're doing. Cattle mutilations were linked in with all that, so they need some sort of enzyme or whatever from the cattle, and you know they're doing that without the government's permission. And It goes on from there and gets more and more sort of baroquely 
paranoid and sinister as these things do. And there's those key figures. I think one, one that really comes to mind was uh, Bill Cooper. I don't know if you've heard of him. You know, sort of hardcore American UFO crank, but he's actually been really influential in those circles. So he he kind of started off as a, a Kennedy conspiracy theorist and was notorious for having the um, theory that the driver of Kennedy's limo killed him by turning around extremely quickly and shooting Kennedy in the head with some sort of special gun that pumped out some sort of shellfish toxin that kind of, you know, melted Kennedy's skull. Um, and then the gun biodegraded. Sounds like something out of a David Cronenberg movie. It's quite a good trick, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so no, I very much find the evidence. The new flesh. Mm. Yeah, an organic gun, like Existenz or something. So he started touting this and then got into this dark side ufology, which other other Americans had bandied about for a while and became a leading exponent of it. Um, but was also, uh, well, haven't seen footage of him, but just read some of his writings and what other people have said about him. It comes across as a prime sociopath, which I think is another fascinating dimension of modern conspiracy culture, and particularly this UFO stuff, because the, the claims are so extreme. But, you know, if anyone disagreed with him, you're part of the conspiracy and, you know, very much that type of logic. Um, and that guy, he's also interesting, Cooper, for, you know, meeting a sorry end, a very paranoid end where his anti-government beliefs led him to have a shootout with police in which he was killed over paying his taxes, I think it was, something like that. Actually, that gives us a nice segue into libertarianism, because in your PhD, you kind of take a certain class of conspiracy theorists to task, don't you, for their subscription to a kind of libertarian political ideal? I possibly do. Uh, I haven't really looked at it for a while, so I may well have forgotten. Um, I certainly did deal with that topic, yeah. Um, and that's one I do find interesting in its you know, sinister implications. Um, I'll freely admit here that my politics are of the left, so I do find libertarians um, fairly wretched creatures for the most part but they can they can be odd beasts yeah just just that strain anyway that i you know something noticeable in, in american culture american conspiracy culture i thought that bubbles through but yeah okay i see what you mean with with cooper yeah the you know really strong anti-government anti-authoritarian actually that that was another thing i was trying to think of some ideas to talk about um for this but the the idea of you know conspiracy as a conspiracy theories as a way of demonizing either people and or institutions that you really dislike in relation to your ideological beliefs, for example. So um, the UFO framework is maybe one way that that's expressed in American conspiracy culture by conspiracy theorists with really strong libertarian ideals. Either the idea that for someone like Cooper, say, um, you know, you hate the American government so much what the state represents. You know, you, you're such an adherent of this kind of frontiersman, you know, do everything by yourself, um, libertarian individualism, that uh, as Ike might demonize the royal family, who obviously really dislikes by saying they are, you know, shape-shifting lizard baby eaters, um, Cooper and his ilk are doing the same by saying the U.S. government is so bad it's in cahoots with these evil aliens that are abducting people against their will or even more extremely eating people. You know, there's the same tropes. There's, you know, there's people being devoured, um, people having horrible experiments done to them, but all with the collusion, active collusion of 
the authorities, in this case, the American government. And I guess then, then, then the X Files came along. I guess that had to be kind of significant in terms of chucking all the all the idea of UFOs and governmental conspiracies right into the popular consciousness. Um, and then what, what was the follow up? What did it, uh, Millennium? And Where the, they and, the bit crazy. Yeah, and also the lone gunman, which really mm. went with the uh, hyper paranoid approach to to dealing with political inf- information. So yeah, I kind of forget about it now, but but there was a time when not not very long ago at all when that sort of stuff was was really flavour of the minute, wasn't it? Oh yes, uh, yeah. I mean, the, and the Exiles was a kind of surprise hit. No one really thought it was going to be a particularly big show, and yet it kind of tapped into some cultural zeitgeist of that mo- mo- moment and became the be- the behemoth it is still today. Mm, with the remake about to, about to be released, yeah. Um, X Files seem to be interesting in regards to yeah, the, the writers appear to have researched all of that what at that time was really quite fringe UFO conspiracism heavily, and they were drawing on that for inspiration for a lot of their plot lines and scenarios, at least with the ARC story, the ongoing one about the alien colonisation and so forth, um, and mainstreaming it. Yeah. So this is probably something else from a media studies perspective I find interesting as well, but there's you know the idea of there's some core texts that really popularised a particular strand or or um, type of conspiracy theory and, you know, make it sort of go mega, if you like, and it really gets ingrained in the popular consciousness. Whereas before it used to circulate amongst people at weird fringe conferences in the middle of nowhere or, you know, on obscure forums on the internet and so forth. Um, so, for example, Roswell, just to tie back with UFOs, is maybe a good example where that story bubbled around for years from reading about ufological history. So it was certainly there, but it was kind of, you know, if you're a hardcore UFO buff, you'd heard about it. Until, I think it was 1980, when Charles Berlitz, who, American author from the Berlitz family who do the language schools, but he also was famous for writing these these potboiler paranormal books in the 70s and early 80s. Um, so with another guy, William Moore, wrote, I think it was the the Roswell Incident, but a bestseller because he'd already had a reputation as a best-selling author. I think his big one was the Bermuda Triangle in 1973. He was the key author who sort of popularised that bit of folklore as a genuine paranormal phenomenon. Um, so Roswell, then it was kaboom, this is a big thing. Then you get all these other you know members of the public interested. Then you get all these other amateur researchers really keen and they go out and do their own work and... Then you get all these other people that come out of the woodwork. Ah, oh, 50 years ago, I was out in the Texan desert, New Mexican desert, and yeah, I was, you know, smoking something with my mates, and we saw this thing drop out of the sky, and oh, yeah, and then the military turned up, and, you know, the, all the, the various deathbed confessions and the like for Roswell. Um, and maybe the X-Files was similar in that regard and more potent because it was a TV show. So possibly reaching many more people than, say, a book might have on an international level as well. Of course, there are the conspiracy theories that go that the X-Files was a perfect disinformation campaign, a way to get information out there, whilst also at the same time going, no, 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 you watch that on TV. Yes, it's all just pretend. Yeah. There is no real Scully in Mulder. <laughs> that is pretty good. And that also sounds um, you know, similar logic to the disclosure movement. Mm, yeah, that's a term I've heard used a bit. I... Sorry, I'm just. Are you familiar with that from 
I presume. Yeah, I I don't know about you, Matthew. I, I've only heard it in just fairly sort of general terms, as in disclosure is what what these ufologists want want to bring about, want to force out of the government. But I don't know in, in, in any great detail. Yeah, it seems that this, this this idea of the you know yeah a political movement of let's petition the president and the American political authorities to really reveal the truth about UFOs, i.e. that they know that alien life exists and that there are some, you know, aliens are on Earth and the American government has direct evidence of this. Um, And also part of that is often cited is um, the idea that pop culture, uh, such as the X-Files, as you mentioned, and other sort of major films and so forth, Transformers series are ways of conditioning the public to accept the reality of alien life when disclosure is going to happen. So it's kind of a psyops going on through popular culture. So a a ufological variation on the whole Illuminati media memescape that's so popular online at the moment. You know, sort of pop videos are all full of Illuminati imagery and the like. Um, Lady but Gaga this, with her hand over the eye and yeah. stuff that's come up a few times here. Yeah. Did you see but, that new sto- story that came out about two or three weeks ago about the person who's doing infographics for regional news in the US quite deliberately putting in Illuminati symbols into the graphics behind TV shows and sports broadcasts oh, really? in, oh. in, in the hope that people would spot them and no one did. So he had lots of pyramids, eyes and pyramids, pentagrams and such like <laughs> in sports broadcasts, thinking that someone would talk about them online and no one spotted them. And her, so as he was going, look, everyone spots all of this imagery in a Lady Gaga video, but on regional news, no one cares at all. Yeah, that's actually, that's great. I have to look that up. Yeah, so he's kind of been like... Um culture jammer or some sort of some sort of avant-garde subversive type and yet completely failing to have any impact whatsoever as far as he could tell yeah okay so he's doing it in full view and it's quite blatant and no one picks up on it whereas there's endless endless examination of yeah some lady gaga or tupac video well i have to say i think in the lady gaga case i actually think the people who are making those videos are quite deliberately putting those symbols in not because they're members of the illuminati who want to reveal their plans to society but for the sheer fact they know that people look for these things and thus it makes people pay more attention to the videos they produce so i think it's a self-feeding circle now essentially yeah, yeah, and that whole that principle of, of music and pop culture is really based around notions of transgression as a way of selling, as a way of selling your cultural product in the consumer marketplace. So um, you've got to have something that's edgy for the youth. Um, things like you know, sexuality is possibly no longer as edgy and transgressive as it was given social changes. So. Yeah, I've been thinking similar as well. Maybe these these videos they're deliberately playing on the kind of occult, magical overtones of that sort of symbolism and putting it in there because they know the kids will be like, "Ooh, this is a bit freaky." Wow, it's got some you know sort of weird occultic ambience, possibly more potent in the states given it's you know much more um, ingrained Christian culture, you know, sort of strong fundamentalist kind of ethos that's still apparent there, possibly more than we've got in New Zealand, say. Yes, where we are sort of largely secular. 
Yeah. So yeah, yeah. No, I I wondering that also about you know the the deliberate usage of Illuminati symbolism and motifs in in that kind of way. Um, yeah. Without going too far as to saying that they're all tenth level masons doing weird rites off screen or whatever. But. Although of course they could be. <laughs> you have to remember, Freemasons aren't quite the enemy that some people online want to make them out to be. Mostly they sit around in town halls drinking sherry, complaining that no one wants to play with them anymore. Yeah, that's that's uh, that sounds about right from the few I could probably think of as well. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's, it's quite in- interesting talking about the UFO side of things, because as you point out, the kind of UFO- ufology that emerges in the 80s, the kind of dark side ufology, as opposed to the kind of more golden days of the 40s, 50s and 60s, where aliens were kind of bringing a hopeful message and we were being warned of forecoming doom. And in the 80s, they kind of went goth and kind of joined in with the darkness. <laughs> uh, if we move to the occult and we start talking about occultic conspiracy theories, particularly the long history of discussion of the occult, particularly within Europe and the UK... Are they similar or dissimilar? I mean, so compared, say, to the talk of UFOs, are occultic conspiracy theories along the same axis, or are they a kind of different version of a conspiracy theory, under your view? Oh, um, this is probably just to do with stuff I've been reading recently. Um, I kind of liken them together, because I think there's a lot of crossover between them. Um, Well, look, I'll, I'll... Maybe rewind a little bit back to UFO ufology, because um, there seems to be you know certain dominant strands of UFO culture that have developed over the last fifty years and are kind of fairly well entrenched today. So the first and maybe oldest one is the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which is literally that the ETs are coming to Earth from other planets and spaceships and they're doing missions of exploration or whatever. They're fairly benign and so forth. Um, sometimes they crash a la Roswell and the American government might have recovered some of that soft, you know, that, that hardware and has back engineered it or whatever for sinister purposes, possibly. So that's kind of the old school one. Yes, there are literal aliens visiting Earth outside of all of the scientific sort of problems that, that suggests. Um, the psychosocial hypothesis, which certainly where I'd put myself in these debates, but that's Sorry, the ETH one is more American. They seem to have that more literal belief, you know, in technological utopianism that maybe appeals in that regard. Psychosocial from Europe and the UK. So more more sceptical. It's like, well, we don't think this stuff is really happening, but there's, you know, people are having genuine experiences that they think are real on some psychological and emotional level. So it's a mixture of all sorts of psychological factors with wider aspects of society, such as the zeitgeist and so forth, that... You know, sort of creating, again, there's there's some mystery and strangeness involved. People are having these mental experiences, possibly, or imaginative experiences that are quite profound for them, but, you know, they don't sort of make any scientific kind of sense. But there's still something on a cultural level that's really quite significant going on there. Um, I think David Clark, who's just written a book, How UFOs Conquered the World, I found it in my town library, which was good, good school from them. It's really good. That's probably a really good expostulation of that whole psychosocial strand in ufology and how it's developed to the present. Because he's a British-based sociologist, isn't he? Yeah, I think he specialises in folklore. Um, He does the columnist of the 14 Times, which 
uh, we're both readers of, obviously. So we are indeed. Yeah. And um, the third strand is this kind of, well, I just, well, I'll call it a cult ufology. So it's you know much more intrinsically entwined with ideas from occultism and mysticism. And I, I don't know, I get the feeling stuff I'm reading online that's actually going through some popularity or resurgence or something. So it maybe has waves. And again, there's maybe sort of key theorists and authors. Um, so some associated with it, possibly uh, Jacques Vallée, who is maybe one of the most interesting authors on UFOs anyway. I'd probably recommend him to people who might not be interested in the subject because he's a very clear writer. He's a French scientist. He's actually coming from a proper scientific background and he's he's like a computer technician and oh, computer developer. But, um, he worked with Alan Hynek and all these other figures back when the American government was investigating UFOs scientifically in the 1960s. So he has a wealth of sort of direct knowledge of the field um, and the main players in it and the cultural and institutional politics involved. His conclusions, whether you like those or not, that there's still something genuinely weird and there is a phenomenon. And the phenomenon is, he thinks, it's some kind of you know, non-human intelligence interacting with humanity in a variety of strange ways. And it kind of works on this level of what folklorists might call the trickster. You know, it's kind of, it doesn't obey what we think is normal aspects of logic and things making sense. So he doesn't give any sort of conclusive arguments, which I think is actually a, a good thing about his reasoning. He's not saying this is literally what the phenomenon is, but just kind of, these are my conclusions on a general level. Um, and there's also John Keel, who was an American journalist who uh, wrote, you know, fairly lurid but entertaining books. The Mothman Prophecies being the big one, based on his fieldwork in West Virginia when they had this big UFO flap in the mid-60s. Um, and people were seeing not only UFOs but weird monsters, yeah, a Mothman flying around. So, but he also was, you know, there's this other intelligence that's kind of really strange that's manipulating humans. He was a much more paranoid take on it. Um, and they seem to have sort of been a couple of key figures that have set these templates of UFOs and occultism, as in there's this other occultism, another realm of reality that is interacting with humanity, um, but not along ways we kind of think of in terms of your standard, you know, sort of logical, positivistic, materialistic paradigms that science is based on. So this is when you get into the realms of psychic phenomena and paranormal and the supernatural. So that those are the levels, those kind of intangible levels where the interactions taking place. UFOs are one sort of major manifestation of those forces or intelligences on our plane of reality, if you like, of, of that, that kind of, you know, otherworldly intelligence or, or phenomenon um, coming through. So, yeah, someone like Vali, you know, sort of gets into the ties between um, ufology and psychic phenomena with a variety of, you know, quite, well, depending on your tastes, but quite interesting sort of case studies and reports and speculations and so forth. Yeah, but I've noticed just, you know, reading websites, there's the anomalist and places like that online that, you know, sort of uh, clearing houses of paranormal discussion online. Um, guy called Chris Knowles, who's an American, I think he's a comics writer. He writes quite an interesting blog called The Secret Sun. Don't agree with what he says on there, but he's actually, I think, a good writer who expresses his ideas quite well. But he is a very clear exponent of this type of thing, I think. 
So I find him quite interesting and he's good because he often links to all these other writers on the subject as well. Yeah, so, so and it seems to be taking a, a slightly more sinister turn some of this discussion as in, you know, there is the UFOs are kind of magical and or a, a demonological slant coming through. I mean, thinking it's sort of like the, the new demonology paradigm and ufology. So there are these kind of weird otherworldly intelligences a la a bit like out of HP Lovecraft or something that have maybe sinister or, you know, we don't know, designs on humanity and they're manipulating us and so forth. The control motif again, which is central to conspiracism. And, you know, you can analyze the history of ufology along these lines. And sorry, another interesting time with occultism because I've... I don't quite know why, but just got interested in, in Alistair Crowley recently. And over the years, I've just accrued books on various subjects I thought might be interesting from working in a bookshop. So I had a few Crowley bios. So I actually thought it was about time I actually read some of these. So I'd actually plowed through about three or so because I was just kind of interested. What is what is the mythology around this guy? He's such a big cultural figure. But I've, I've found that there's this distinct strand perpetuated by people like Knowles, for example, on that blog of Crowley being tied in with ufology. So this whole mythology that is has been developing, uh, I think it's kind of quite interesting just to see it sort of developing before your cultural eyes, so to speak, with, with a whole lot of set storylines of Crowley is almost in some respects the key instigator of modern ufology. Obviously, I might not have this exactly right, so I'm just trying to do it from memory off the top of my head. Crowley had a very active figure, uh, a very active career, um, traveled all over the world to places. And I think in the, no, sorry, you, you know of his influence on L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons? Yes, actually, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the Jack Parsons story, just for the sheer fact that, so for listeners who don't know who Jack Parsons was, Jack Parsons was a very famous rocketeer operating out of California, arguably the father of modern US, ro- US rocketry, uh, and also a major figure in the occult at the time, which is kind of what got him put offside with the American government, uh, and hooked up with a young L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, and was doing, um, well, he was a, a Crowley follower, a Thelemite. Um, Crowley's sort of self-styled religion of magic and the will and so forth. Um, anyway, one guy, Kenneth Grant, who was a major um, acolyte of Crowley's or a pigeony after his demise and sort of perpetuated the Crowley mythology through a whole lot of, um, well, I haven't read any of them directly. They sound like rather lurid books. But he appears to be the key seed of this Crowley UFO link. So um, Parsons and Hubbard doing Crowley's theories. They wanted to do some Babylon working ritual, I don't know, to bring in a moon child or some other weird, you know, occult entity or something. They went and did some weird rituals out in the Mojave Desert in California. Grant sort of speculates they actually opened up a portal in space-time and let all these, you know, weird entities from another dimension come in, the weird entities being UFOs and their alien occupants. Those are these otherworldly occult entities, and that's how they're manifesting in our reality. Um, And that appears to have just hit the imagination of a whole lot of people, particularly in the States, um, and sort of bubbled through to sort of be this, this big strand of contemporary ufology i think and the idea of you know crowley when he for example toured around america um in the 1910s so this is what this christopher knowles guy is sort of arguing he went on a magical retreat in new hampshire i presume that just means he went around sort of 
rooting his head off out in the woods or something with his various concubines. But this guy Knowles, oh, he did some rituals there and then you know opened up another gate in space-time, which was meant to activate in 40 years. 1961, Betty and Barney Hill, their abduction in New Hampshire, which is kind of seen as the template for the, the modern alien abduction phenomenon. You know, so again, Crowley did this. Um, Crowley hung out at Montauk at the top of Long Island in New York. He probably did some ritual there. Lo and behold, Montauk is now the center of all these, you know, absolutely mad conspiracy theories about secret American bases and they've got time travel technology and they're taking kids there and doing weird experiments on them. You name it, it's all in there. You know, multidimensional time travel type stuff. Yeah, we've looked at the Montauk project before. That's some that's some good stuff right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so Crowley's sort of been tied in with all of these um, by all these writers. Oh, and the other the other big one is that um, yeah, the Book of the Law. So the basis of Crowley's occult religion that he thought would be the you know the religion of the new age of man after Christianity or whatever in the West, um, and was apparently dictated to him by a discarnate intelligence through his wife. So you've got this weird channeling going on. He was in Cairo in 1904. His wife goes into these trances, tells him, you know, you have to write this book. He receives some sort of weird messages or something from some disembodied voice, writes all this stuff down, puts out all this book. That's the crux of his legend because it's got his famous aphorisms, um, do what thou will should be the whole of the law and Every man and woman shall be a star. The stuff that Jimmy Page would sort of scratch onto his Led Zeppelin, you know, records in the run-out groove, that type of thing. So, you know, all the, yeah, man, I'll do what they will, that the hippies picked up on. Um, but that book, Crowley, apparently, I mean, the, the evidence for this is very tenuous, so that's what makes me kind of more intrigued by it. So it's people, you know, taking some tiny bits and pieces and sort of really extrapolating from them into this sort of fully-fledged occult conspiracy mythology. Yeah, so Crowley drew a, f a picture of what he thought this entity that dictated this book to him looked like. This kind of weird face with a big head. He wasn't a very good drawer, um, possibly. But lo and behold, people later, oh, it looks like a grey alien. You know, it looks a little bit like a grey alien. Looks a bit like just some general monster doodle as well, if you like. But, you know, it's got that, that interpretation is already there that people are wanting to put on it. So that's another key part of this whole new mythos as well that's come out and then this book which admittedly i did find disturbing and and sort of read it but uh, well yeah it, it did kind of freak me out i think just oh i did probably find it a bit scary even though i'm not religious or anything but i, d I don't quite know why final events by this american ufologist nick redfern so he picks up on all the stuff and goes through and sort of argues that the he has evidence that the american intelligence agencies actually had a special unit set up um, that was doing occult experiments surrounding contacting extraterrestrial intelligences, but they found out they're actually occult intelligences and they thought they were actually demonic, literally so. So Redfern, to his credit, is not actually saying that himself. So his concern was that you've got a bunch of extreme fundamentalists in the US military in really high positions of power who believe this stuff. So he thinks that's quite a dangerous you know, development if you've got people like that in the intelligence agencies who are meant to be sane for one thing, logical, um, objective, you know, secular, etc. all of those values, but but they're not kind of there. So, 
Yeah, I think that that's a, a particular variant of this that's come out because he reckons he's found government files that kind of reinforce the existence of this group. And a lot of talking with weird people in sort of cafes and anecdotal again. Um, but all of this sort of stuff adds to the adds to the mystique, adds to the mystery, adds to the mythology. So other people pick up on it. So so I'm just trying to think if there's other bits and pieces to this whole Crowley occult UFO conspiracism, but. Yeah, that's certainly something I've just found pretty interesting because it's almost like said before, it's like something that's sort of developing now. So if I just jump on the internet every so often, it sort of seems to be another little bit of an installment that someone has written, some conspiracy theorist has written that sort of adds a little bit more to that narrative and sort of fleshes out a bit more. And then you get the, the snowball effect. So, you know, if it will be picked up on by more people and become more entrenched and established, and also tapping into, I mean, a particular variant with Crowley, but tapping into the similar, you know, hardcore occult demonological frame that Ike is working on. Where, you know, again, you've got the reptilian shapeshifters who are, to all intents and purposes, demonic monsters. He doesn't call them that, but that's that's the impression of them, that they are, you know, they're non-human entities in positions of power. They manipulate people, they eat people. Everything that's, you know, at the very heart of darkness of mankind, they do. And... That they are also linked with sophisticated technology and sort of other dimensions, and you know maybe they were evolved from dinosaurs and they went into outer space and then came back again to try and retake over Earth and not very happy at us upstart apes. All that kind of those kind of ideas floating around in in a very well not very but you know a, a different frame of reference. So he, he certainly wouldn't bring Crowley in because he really does not like him, but. So let's end on a fun question. Mm. <laughs> okay, after that, yeah. What is your favourite conspiracy theory? At the moment, it, m- it might be the whole, uh, what's the right way of trying to sum it up? That whole kind of all-going chemtrail sylph um, mythology that sprung up just because it's so utterly mad. So I, I can't take too much of it because I just feel my, my synapse is starting to collapse. But it really is just a whole other paradigm of human thought, um, you know, on, on a good day. You know, the thing of the people take photographs of clouds and there's websites of photographs of clouds and they're saying, here's the good cloud spirits eating the evil chemtrails. And there's actually, a, you know, a, I'm surprised at the amount of this material that's online and I presume it's not people taking the piss because there just is quite a lot of it and they all seem to be, you know, fairly serious about what they're doing. And all kind of descended from some very, you know, weird melange. I think it's also very interesting from a cultural history perspective, melange of ideas cribbed from Rudolf Steiner and Wilhelm Reich, um, theosophy in general, ideas from the occult in general. So they've, they've formed this whole paradigm of, you know, this kind of all-going energy, Steiner, other realms type stuff with the chemtrails and the sort of evil government technology and with these kind of good spiritual entities that are trying to help mankind against the evil conspirators. And I think this website, Educate Yourself, um, if it's still active, I haven't looked at it for a little while, um, was a, a, a good sort of clearinghouse for that information. I hadn't heard of that one, but it sounds quite awesome. 
But you do realise the reason why you find it hard to cope with these chemtrail conspiracy theories is because the chemtrails are doing a job on your brain at this very moment in time. If the chemtrails didn't exist, you'd be able to cope with the magnificence of the chemtrail hypothesis. Um, no, maybe the chemtrails are having some effect. I did notice some good examples just the last few days in the, the very clear sort of frosty winter air over Hamilton of some good, uh, well, sorry, I'd, I'd say contrails, but um, I'm sure there's plenty around who would point up and go chemtrails, so maybe I should scan some of the usual suspect websites for some nice photographs of them. I'm sure they've been uploaded there very promptly. Clear Swinney, eat your heart out. There does seem to be something quite interesting about the chemtrail hypothesis, which is that they put all these photos of clouds online. It's almost as if they've never looked at clouds before and gone, oh my god, clouds look like that. Yeah, they haven't studied their cloud chart. Yeah. Well, I just had my cloud spotters guide out before, looking at the the mackerel clouds, cirrocumulus something outside. My wife and I were going, oh, look at those, those are nice. I thought, I wonder what they are. Then I'm like, yeah, these, you know. There's some wisps of cirrus up high, but they must be a chemtrail and so on and so forth. So you're just um, a lack of sort of natural history knowledge or possibly desire to sort of engage on, you know, the natural world around you before sort of immediately jumping in and attributing these things to some human made cause. Sorry, you probably want to finish off. I just I just also find this might be a topic for another type of discussion. The anthropocentrism of so much conspiracy theory fascinating, um, particularly in terms of downplaying nature altogether. So something like earthquakes don't really exist anymore. It's the earthquake gun, you know, it's the harp. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So natural events, they no longer actually, there's no such thing as a natural disaster anymore. It's an unnatural disaster. It's man-made. But, you know, that, that, that kind of worldview of diminishing nature and saying that all of these natural events are now the construction of humans with this highly advanced technology, I just found really interesting, um, just in terms of the the wider sort of cultural and ideological connotations and resonances of that. Um, But again, it's kind of, yeah, probably a wrap-up time, and that's, that's possibly something for another line of discussion. Indeed. Well, we'll, we'll have you back and we can explore the anthropocentric nature of so many of these natural cause conspiracy theories out there. So, thank you, Dean. That has been absolute pleasure. Okay, all right. Well, I hope my rantings about Crowley and UFOs were of some interest. No, no, all very informative thank you. So that was Dean Bellinger, another of the many conspiracy theory theorists of the Antipodes. We live in a weird hemisphere here in the South. Must be something in the water. Well, well, well. Three holes in the ground. Exactly. No, I liked. It. I thought that was really interesting. Actually, I hadn't. I hadn't. Well, wasn't aware of how closely tied the UFO stuff and the occult stuff can be. And that's it. You're just going to leave me hanging. You're not going to. Not even going to agree with me. You're just going to sit there grinning like some kind of a monkey. Yes, you are. You're listening to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, everyone. Um, that was our interview, making up, obviously, the bulk of the episode, so we might as well just shoot straight into the uh, conspiracy catch-up. Not going to say a fucking word, are <laughs> Play the damn chime. Breaking, breaking conspiracy theories in the news. Right, so a, a short one. 
this week, which is good because the the interview whilst um, long, whilst long, was, was certainly worth it. Yes, yeah, yeah, I meant to say was informative. Was long. Was long. That's yes. entirely the wrong em- emphasis. I'm so sorry. Yes, nevertheless, it was informative. Mm. So lucky for us, I don't actually have a lot. To, um, to follow up on. First of all, we, we've mentioned a few times that we kept getting this mysterious 50 hits a day on the one episode we did about Tesla all originating from China, and we never quite understood why, but it seems like they've dried up. I'm a little bit I'm a little bit sad to see them go, to be honest. I know. That 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 little trickle of 50 hits a day to China, that kind of just kept me going on a day-by-day basis. And now, now we just have to rely on people actually listening to the podcast yeah. as opposed to what I'm assuming was some kind of bot. Some weird bot that just was pinging really, us on really, a regular really basis. Yeah. into stories about Tesla or really hated Thomas e- Thomas Edison. Mm. So, yes, I mean, we, 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 we came up with various explanations for what was going on at the time. Maybe now we can just come up with explanations for why it stopped, what dark conspiracy was behind the silencing of the 50 hits a day from China. We'll, we'll probably never know. Actually, we probably will never know. No. So let's move on to something a little more concrete. So this... Um, I can't remember how long ago it was. We did it. We did a, an episode on sort of conspiracy theories surrounding American presidents and other governmental figures in other countries. And, and we, we talked kind of about, mentioned this issue, didn't we? Yeah, we yeah. We, we talked about the uh, prosecutor in Argentina, uh, Mr. Alberto Nisman, who was what was he? He was about to indict, indict the president. president. Yeah, um, or at least then, the claim was he was about to indict the hmm. president, and then and there'd just been a whole lot of of. of um, Reshuffling and stuff, scandals going on with the intelligence. So he was, I think the claim was he was found dead at his desk, mm. and in his hand was an unsigned or in, warrant in, in for his, the arrest in his of the waste paper bin yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So it was very, you know, it was ostensibly a suicide, but it was incredibly suspicious that he died just before he was about to do something damaging to the government. I think the term is convenient. Convenient, yes, yes. And so now, just last week, uh, it's been revealed that um, he had had uh, spying malware on his cell phone for at least six weeks before he died, uh, suggesting that he had been under some sort of surveillance. Um, so uh, uh, apart from that, all I have see on our little list of things to catch up about is that you've been reading books I know, it's, it's a dirty no. thing, but someone's got to do it. Ah, it's not uh, a practice so I recommend. Of recent note, I've been sent to local conspiracy theory books. Uh, Richard Harmon's, this is a really long title, so please bear with me. America Betrayed, Why 9-11 Occurred, Plus a Wake-Up Call for the Future, which is an 80-page book which claims that 9-11 was caused by the Nazi Zionists, which is his portmanteau term of Nazi and Zionist, uh, which basically claims that the founding fathers would hate what America has become and Prescott Bush is actually responsible for importing Zionism to Germany, forming Nazism, and then modern-day Nazis run the American state. But those modern-day Nazis are the Zionists. Quite bizarre little book, actually. It's a great example of what Richard Hofstadter would call pseudo-scholarship, and that it has all of the hallmarks of being a book that is based on research, except that when you start to pry the research apart to work out, is this factual or are these claims true, kind of all just ev- evaporates. But that book, and despite the fact it uses the term Nazi Zionist, is a darn sight better than the other book I read recently, which is To the End of the Earth and Back Again by Maxwell C. Hill, which is a book which claims that the ancient Greeks and Egyptians came to Aotearoa, New Zealand first, and that the Maori are in fact the product of Chinese Melanesian inbreeding, 
and also were brought here by the Spanish. Right. But was this before or after the, the Greeks and the Egyptians? After. Were and they only arrived about 500 years ago. And the entire book appears to be one concerted campaign to denigrate Maori as much as possible. And then go, oh, and it's quite possible that maybe there were people here before they came uh, and something, something, something conspiracy. It's quite right, bizarre so book. It's about 300 pages in length, and it doesn't really tell a consistent story as opposed to tell a lot of different stories, which all kind of suggests that Maxwell C. Hill doesn't really understand history so or historical processes. Is it, is it, he's, so he says that the Maori were brought here not of their own volition and also other people were here before them anyway. Yes, and the, two the ancient actually Greeks related. and Egyptians. Right, okay. Who were then wiped out. Mm. Oh, but the best bit is, and this is the bit which I actually don't think that Max Hills actually worked out. He makes this claim. He claims that the Maori came here on Spanish ships, at least Tainui did, one of the iwi, one of the tribes in Maoridom, and that some of the Maori are the product of Chinese Melanesian breeding when the Chinese brought their junks down here and left their Melanese Chinese children behind. But also the Māori came from a place called Hawaii, and Hawaii is located in the upper reaches of the North Island. So he claims, look, the Māori claim they came from Hawaii, which is probably the Cook Islands, but that's not true. They actually came from the north of the North Island, because a place called Hawaii there, and doesn't seem to realise that if he's making the claim that the Māori came here from here, then they must have been here in the first place. Mm. It's a really weird book. Well, Actually the hardest book I've ever read. I've said it before and I'll say it again, reading gives you cancer. In this case, it has. I don't recommend it in, under any circumstances. I have to have lesions cut off my back because of this. Yeah, well, you've only got yourself to blame, quite frankly. And my anonymous benefactors who keep sending me these books to read. Mm. Well, obviously, anonymous benefactors. What more needs to be said? They're behind everything. Almost as though there was some kind of conspiracy afoot. I like the way you managed to segue in to that particular point. Yeah, it's pretty good. So, I guess we're at the end. I guess we're done. And the end has been prepared for. It has. Doctor Who reference. It took me so long before I got what you were going on when, when, you, when you used to say that. But now I do. And see, in those days, I sounded much more intelligent. Now it just sounds like a pop culture reference. Yeah. So, um, goodbye. Do we want to do contact details? Yeah, you can get in contact individually with Josh or myself on Twitter. I'm Conspiracism. And I am Monkey Fluids. We have a Patreon page. We you do. can look up the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. You can give us money. Or you can just go to conspiracism.podbean.com and give us money through their patron system. There are lots of ways to give us as much cash as you desire. Mm, and, and please do, quite frankly. We need to roll in the in the moolah so we can fund our extravagant Morgan-style lifestyles. Oh, yes. Yeah, actually, that needs to be the stretch goal. DeLorean full of dry ice. Yes. See to it. Yes, I shall put that stretch goal up. If you donate $15,000 a month, we too can have our own DeLorean, and ours will actually travel in time. That's a promise. Okay, I think we're done. So we have a song... And it's almost kind of relevant, because it's called UFOs. And it's by the spectacular Fantastic. So let's take it away. Mm -hmm.